Welcome to Places Everyone, a conversation about the balance of art and business. I'm Lonnie Firestone. Five years ago, if you had asked writer and actress Jocelyn Bio what stories get told about Africa, she would have said war stories, AIDS, poverty, struggle, and strife. While those stories are important in creating a portrait of Africa, Jocelyn felt they were insufficient, almost laughably so. Jocelyn does comedy as a Broadway and off-Broadway actress, and as a writer of plays and TV shows. She's also the daughter of two Ghanaian immigrants, and what gets her most excited is comedy about Africa. Not the Book of Mormon kind, where Africa is the punchline, but the insider first-person kind that draws on memory, nostalgia, and referential humor. In fact, it was a particular African comedy called Schoolgirls that put Jocelyn on the map this year and led to some big-name producers offering her writing roles on two Netflix shows. Schoolgirls also got the attention of the New York Times Style magazine, which invited Jocelyn among a select group of writers to create short dramatic plays that envisioned America in the year 2024. There are so many misconceptions about West Africa that Jocelyn wants to clarify, and she intends to do so with humor. So what is the sound of African comedy? That's today's episode. But first, something interesting from the intersection of art and finance. The legendary singer Aretha Franklin passed away last year with seemingly no official will. But recently, members of her estate located documents in her home, that seemed to indicate how she wanted to distribute her wealth, which includes real estate and music royalties. Some of those documents were nearly illegible handwritten notes that Miss Franklin had stored under sofa cushions in her home. It seems obvious that a famous singer with a well-regarded music catalog would have created an official will before her death, but this sort of thing happens surprisingly often. According to Forbes, the estate of singer Prince has still not been settled three years after his death because he died without an estate plan. Creating an estate plan before death is far less complicated and messy than figuring it out in court afterward, which is what Aretha Franklin's sons and relatives plan to do next month. Without an official will, Miss Franklin's handwritten notes may be the only thing that determines her family's inheritance. Now, here's my interview with Jocelyn Bio. Jocelyn, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. So you're kind of crushing it right now. <laughs> thank you. Uh, I'll I just, take it. Um, I see you bouncing between New York and L.A. and working in theater and television. And in particular, you wrote a play called School Girls that has really struck a powerful chord with audiences. Does this moment right now feel like the career you envisioned? It feels, uh, well, the short answer is yes. Um, but I just didn't think it was going to happen this, this way. Uh, I, I knew I wanted to um, always you know, be a writer and an actor at the same time and that both of those would be respected. Um, I didn't know that Schoolgirls would be the play that was going to like set off my writing career. I thought it was going to be another project. Um, but in a lot of ways, I'm actually glad that Schoolgirls was the first one because the first of all, the title itself really like, you know, told a story in terms of like 
what kind of writer I am, that I'm, you know, looking to write African comedy and uh, and add to the, you know, um, narrative of how the diaspora is reflected. And I feel like that Schoolgirls was like the easiest way actually to do that. And um, really and what is the whole title? Schoolgirls or the African Mean Girls play. Yes. Um, and I knew that, that that subtitle, I knew that I would get like a comparison to Mean Girls. I also wanted to like kind of throw it in the face of all the people who wanted me to write an African war play because they thought that's the only way I'd ever get produced. Um, and so I'm I'm happy that I put that that subtitle and I'm happy that the play, you know, did really well because now I have uh, everyone understands and knows my voice. So yeah. It's cool. The play is being produced in so many cities right now or about to be New York, Atlanta, Portland, Boston, Berkeley, Pittsburgh, among other places. Um it tells the story of the Miss Ghana beauty pageant and portrays the ways in which darker and lighter tones of black skin are the source of tension between various women competing for the title of Miss Ghana. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also really funny amidst these serious themes. Did you find or have you found that the play is more somber or funny or shocking depending on who's watching? Well, I, I have to say I'm really uh, excited about the fact that, like, no matter where I go to see the show, um, everyone always, like, finds it really fun and funny. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I guess, you know, the humor lands, thank God. <laughs> um, and, I mean, I think different audiences are always going to, like, you know, you know, pick and choose the things that, like, you know, really, you know, affect them. Um, for a play that's really only 75, 80 minutes tops, yeah. there's about 10 super serious minutes of it. And some, and those 10 minutes tend to be really affecting for people who um, have seen the show. So I don't know. It really varies. Like there's some people who are like, I, I just thought it was like so hilarious and so fun and poignant. And then there are others who are like, oh, those girls, you know, it's, <laughs> So sad. It's so heartbreaking. Um, and it's both. Uh, and it's both. So whatever anyone takes from it, that's, you know, their thing. But yeah. um, I, I'm mainly just excited that people always, you know, refer to it first as a comedy and not like some tragic, mm-hmm. heartbreaking story about, you know, African girls in, in mm-hmm. boarding school who are so saddened by their dark skin because it's really, <laughs> that's really not the whole, uh, that's not the way in which I'm delivering the story. And um, that's important for me because that's, uh, for me, being uh, a dark skinned woman who had my own very long journey towards owning my beauty, um, it's important that the way in which people receive the story is is the same way I experienced it, which some moments were heartbreaking and some moments were hilarious. And um, now this is kind of the period on the end of that, you know, chapter for me. Like I've actually mm-hmm. overcome that and I've, I've gone through it. And in a lot of ways, writing the play was super therapeutic. And I think people also feel that too when they see the show. Yeah. And kind of demystifying an experience that may have may have been really fraught previously. Yeah, Like sure. there's the presence of, of lightning cream mm-hmm. that some of the girls use. Um, and then when a, a lighter skinned black woman or biracial woman comes into the school, mm-hmm. the whole audience, I mean, I think white audiences and black audiences alike are like, ooh, yeah. this is going to be trouble. Well, that's the thing. It's like, I, I always say that school girls in a lot of ways is a play about racism. There's just no white people in it. <laughs> 
And so once, you know, Erica, the transfer student who's biracial, you know, comes on stage and I, and I'm, and, and I'm, they, I set it up that way. It's like mm-hmm. one of the characters says like, who else could beat you, Paulina? And then in walks the girl. I'm like, <laughs> that's who's going to beat her. But the story of how she beats her and what happens um, is like, you know, what I think is like the fun part. And a lot of people, especially the white people, I think they immediately recognize, oh, this is privilege. And, yeah. and because I'm like, there's really a universality to this story. We, we've all been this girl in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's just, I'm, I'm thrilled that people, you know, rock with it. <laughs> and the way that Paulina, who's sort of the villainous character, yeah. is also the one whose story it is. Yeah. I thought a lot about humanizing the villain. That was like the one thing that I was thinking about with Paulina's character, because only as an adult did I really realize that those bullies that I dealt with in school were just people who were processing pain in like a really crappy way. <laughs> and I didn't know that. I, I never had any empathy for them. I just was like, they're just evil. They're just bad seeds. That's it. And it was only as an adult where I was like, wow, she she was probably really dealing with some like really tough stuff. And had she had some, you know, care and compassion in her life, maybe she would have, you know, gone a different way. And so um, making Paulina the seemingly the villain at the top of the play and then someone you completely empathize with by the end, um, was was uh, purposeful and, um, you know, because we all have colors. Mm-hmm. So you're an American child of the 80s and 90s. Yes. Through and through. Proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think one facet of your writing uh, that makes it so funny and has such a, like, generational touchstone is the pop culture references that you weave in. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's definitely true of Schoolgirls, and it's true of an upcoming play of yours, Nollywood Dreams, yes. um, which we'll get to in a second. Um, but there's this added layer of situating your plays in Africa. Mm-hmm. So there's this sort of meta lens of an African, sorry, an American writer mm-hmm. doing an African take on American culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you get into that that double lens? Because you've lived your whole life here, though you have parents who grew up in Ghana. Yeah, but that that's exactly it. Like, I have this super unique purview that, like, literally no other person unless, you know, they are also first-generation African like me has. I, I have uh, parents who, you know, emigrated here. We grew up in, you know, New York City. And so I had immigrant parents, but grew up in an American, you know, culture. I, you know, ate African food, but also, you know, knew McDonald's or whatever. Mm-hmm. So there's this really unique, you know, um, perspective that I have of, of both the immigrant experience, you know, from an African perspective, um, and then the American experience. And um, to be able to, like, melt all of that together into um, my work feels, like, super exciting, especially because, like, there was so many things that in America I'd have to correct people on in terms of, like, what is actually ha- the reality of Ghana now. And then in Ghana, I'm always correcting my my poor family, my cousins, who I, like, really thought had so many crazy misconceptions about America. And so I found myself this translator for culture in a yeah. lot of ways. And um, I-, I thought, well why not take that unique perspective and put it in my writing? And, you know, and not for anything. I mean, most of the narratives that we see about African stories, specifically in theater, are usually stories of, you know, poverty porn, like war, rape, AIDS, struggle, strife. It's kind of like the, you know, the way the whole continent is blanketed. And... And it's as though Africa is a 
country. A country, yeah, the African country. <laughs> um, and Ghana is a city in Africa. <laughs> um, and you're like, okay. And there's so much, there's so much, you know, that people don't understand. And so to be able to like add to that conversation and and say like, hey, this is what Africa is now. Um, this is what Ghana. This is where Ghana is, which is a country in Africa, and Nigeria is also a country here, and we share some sort of, you know, some, you know, cultural uh, specificities, and then there's some differences, and you know, there are everyday people living everyday lives there, and and I I love that there's this, um, you know, with like schoolgirls that they are, are obsessed with like new edition and like, you know, the Miss, you know, Ghana beauty pageant being in Florida or the Miss <laughs> America Universe, excuse me, pageant being in Florida. And they're like, ooh, and dreaming about Miami. It's like, it's so silly and fun. Um, and and also just true of of what both cultures, you know, know of or don't know of each other. One thing that made me laugh out loud when I was reading Nollywood Dreams is when these two Nigerian sisters are talking about Eddie Murphy in Coming to America and praising his performance and yes. his accent. Yes, yes. I mean, like, my mom, is, it's like, I mean, I love Coming to America. It's literally one of my favorite <laughs> movies. I know it through and through. And it's straight up making fun of Africa in a lot of ways. Um, and but my and mom, his accent is horrible. His accent is not. I don't know where it's from. It's definitely from Zamunda because I don't know anybody. I think it's just Eddie Murphy's it's, voice. It's just with he's some just inflection. doing something. Yeah. Um, but I love that my mom was like proud of it. She's like, that's it. That's how it is in Africa. That's how it is. I'm like, that's not how it is at all. You know it. So um, well, I think part of what made me laugh so much about it besides the ridiculousness of praising his accent, was just how how large American culture looms oh, yeah. in the eyes of people in other countries who think about American culture and, and yeah. aspire to be part of it. Um, sort of which leads me to Nollywood Dreams, which is about the Nigerian film industry, mm-hmm. which according to your notes in the script, is the most prolific film industry, second only to Bollywood, mm-hmm. with America coming in third place. Mm-hmm. What should the uninformed person know about Nollywood? Well, it's um, it's a very unique melodramatic version of um, of, of films, and um, that you know, African people, specifically Nigerian and um, Ghanaians, since mainly like in West Africa, the films come out of, um, you know, adopt, wanted to be able to tell their stories in, you know, it, through film. And, but they have such melodramatic ways of being able to just, you know, to the way with which the stories are told are very melodramatic. And um, they're amazing in that way. Like that form is really amazing, um, but also can be, you know, kind of comical and silly if you just have no familiarity with, you know, the genre. But I just, I loved it. And it's the films of my youth. And they were um, straight to video. It they, seems were. Like they were. They're straight to video or straight to you know DVD or you know burnt CDs back you know <laughs> back when those existed, um, and and people you know sell them on the street or sell them in like the local markets and they're playing constantly at like every hair braiding shop and in every African you know home. And now they in the be- U.S. too. Yeah, and now they've become such a big market. Um, Netflix actually adopted you know a whole genre of Nollywood and you can find a, a whole 
canon of Nollywood films on Netflix now. Oh my god! Um, and not just on the you know continent. It's lit. I've watched a bunch of you know Nollywood films on Netflix now, which is really <laughs> exciting. Um, and so yeah, I wanted to like talk about that film industry because it's just not very you know well known. But I learned how unknown it was trying to get the play produced. People stopped cold at just the title. They were like, what's Nollywood? Or they would actually say Bollywood, even though there's no B at all in the title. It just never could get produced. And was so, this before Schoolgirls? I had never even thought of Schoolgirls. I had been I had been working on Nollywood for at least four years before I even thought of Schoolgirls. Ah. And I, I just decided to write Schoolgirls because I was like, well, nobody's producing Hollywood, so let me just write another play. Wow. And that's when I was like, well, if the power really is in the title, I was never going to change Nollywood Dreams' title. And so I was like, if the power really is in the title of a work, then I really got to make this next play really smart. And that's why I added the subtitle to Schoolgirls. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, and I think what's what's funny is that now that Schoolgirls has gained an audience mm -hmm. and people know that you're this comic playwright. Yeah. And you really have a funny voice to you. And you're, and you're going to get into the themes through humor. Yeah. Then you look at Nollywood Dreams and you're like, oh. Yeah. I, have, I know I know Jocelyn's style now. Yeah. I have nothing. There's nothing to explain now. And so if it's not what I wanted. It's not what I initially you know, thought it should be. But I, I'm actually really glad, actually, that Schoolgirls took off first because it really opens up a, a big old door, you know, for Nollywood. Um, and that's why I think MCC, the theater that originally produced Schoolgirls, uh, said, yeah, 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 let's let's go on and make this official and let's, yeah. let's go in. And they totally understood Nollywood all of a sudden. It was, like, kind of amazing. So one hilarious thing in Nollywood Dreams that is similar to Schoolgirls, um, besides these 80s and 90s references that mm -hmm. are like so amazing, um, is the competitive nature between young women. Mm -hmm. That's really what I'm kind of seeing as mm -hmm. a sort of a theme in your mm -hmm, work. Mm -hmm. um, and the kind of like salty attitude that these young women have toward one another mm -hmm. when something is at stake. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to read a short exchange between two women who uh, are both vying for the same lead role in a big new film um, in Nigeria, and they're sort of competing actresses. Their names are Ayama and Fayola. Don't make Ayama feel bad. Clearly she could not afford a collegiate education. Actually, I have a degree in business finance. Oh, well, that is wonderful. I'll be sure to keep you in mind when I'm looking for a new accountant. If I'm not already busy filming. <laughs> <laughs> so I know I read that horribly, but. <laughs> oh, it's great. Oh my God. So what is funny about women throwing shade at each other? Well, I, I think because I went to, first of all, I went to boarding school and so I lived with other, you know, girls my age. Um, and grew up with them then. Um, so I know that inherently. Like, I mean, this is, you know, this this is how girls, for whatever reason, they just always feel like they're in competition with each other. And that only got exacerbated when I decided that I wanted to be an actress. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, then, and then was going to auditions and showing up and like all of a sudden people that I thought I was cool with and that I was friends with uh, all of a sudden started viewing me as competition in this like very odd way. And I'm not competitive at all. And especially with the arts, it's so subjective. And yeah. so the fact that like no one ever really takes that into account is um, 
kind of, you know, silly to me. But I, I love being able to like, you know, put that on display and kind of like show everyone and myself included, like, do you see how idiotic this is? Yeah. Like, this has nothing to do with us. Like, there's a, especially in terms of, you know, arts, like there's a million reasons why somebody's going to get picked, you know, for um, a part and it may have nothing to do with talent in any way. Um, and I love behind the scenes uh, show business, you know, stories and rarely have any of them ever been about black people, much less Africans. And so um, to be able to put that in a play feels really exciting too. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about acting. Okay. So you um, were on Broadway in Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Yes. As well as a bunch of other off-Broadway and other regional stuff. And relating to you as a comic writer, how do you think of yourself as a comic actress? And do you think of yourself that way? And do directors think of you that way? Yeah, they do, um, which is exciting. And I think they mainly think of me that way because the first thing that, that I did professionally was Brandon Jacobs Jenkins' play uh, Neighbors at the Public. And it was a super controversial play because um, it featured Black actors and Blackface, myself included. Um, but at the heart of it, I think people now know that Brandon is, you know, a comedic uh, writer. And we were, we, we found this like real, you know, connection. And I worked with him now. Um, I've done three plays with him now yeah. in New York so far. Um, probably soon to be a fourth. Cool. If, you know, we can get it together. Yeah, I just think that that was like my intro in. And so people realized, you know, like, oh, she's kind of, you know, funny. And then subsequently all the shows that I did um, after that uh, were pretty, you know, comedic or if, they weren't, then I was part of the comedic, you know, relief. But all that to say, I really just think comedy is just a funny way of being serious. And um, I feel like I, I'm able to balance that in both my writing and my acting as well. Yeah. I mean, I think in Curious Incident that your character didn't need to necessarily be as funny as you made her. And mm -hmm. I, um, it made me wonder how your rehearsals go with directors, where is it that directors kind of like see what you're what you're offering and mm -hmm. they want to play it up or are you at this point seeking out roles or directors or playwrights that can enhance that talent or showcase it um well with specifically with curious incident i'll say because uh, i mean that was first of all a show i just thought i was not going to book i mean the time that i booked curious incident was such a precarious time because i really thought i was um I was making steps at the time to walk away from the business because I had become so frustrated by it, actually. Mm. And Acting um, and writing? Both, yeah, because I just was like, this is not working out, you know? And um, I had been at it for about five or six years. You know, I'd been out of school, and um, I was starting to work on um, an Octoroon. We were finally getting a production of it. And I was like, okay, well, this will be my swan song. You know, I'll do this play. <laughs> And I had started looking up um, opportunities to, you know, apply to um, to teach at like a CUNY or something. That being said, I walked into um, Curious with uh, an energy that was really like, I don't care. It was like this, like, I, I know I'm not going to book this, but I don't care. And I wanted to do what I, I, I did the audition in a way that I wanted to do it. I wasn't worried about trying to fit into the mold of whatever, you know, uh, shape the actress who did it in London, you know, um, did. So 
it was just a new color that Marianne or um, Elliot, the director, hadn't seen before, and she liked it. And then that was then that was really it. And then it was like you're perfect. Let's just fine tune what you did. And that was when she never ever ever wanted to shift it into any other direction. So I I wonder then like you know if I mean with the exception of Brandon because you know I know his work so well and understand his writing so well, but. I just wonder if, like, the you know, the color I bring is just the color I bring, and then the directors end up, hmm. you know, liking it and just saying, like, yeah, let's just fine tune what you've got. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> it kind of seems like, like on one hand, like the best acting advice, and on the other hand, questionable acting advice. Sure. Like, don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah, it's like, mm. I mean, when I booked it, I was truly like, what in the world, and I was shocked. You know, I'd been trying to get to Broadway for years, you know, and had been auditioning. I was burnt out from how much I had been auditioning. And so for it to come at a time when I had actually been like, I'm walking away was Mm -hmm. really fascinating. I'm a very spiritual person, too. So I was really like, okay, God, I I get it. I get it. Um, And so it really made that year in the show a really magical time. And... um, to be able to be doing a new play that was um, about, you know, a young boy on the autism spectrum um, and my youngest niece is on the spectrum as well. Um, and so to be able to do a play um, that really reflected something that was honestly quite close to me um, was really exciting and um, a really great moment for me as an actor. That's so amazing. <laughs> Did that experience singularly change your mind? About acting or about staying yeah, in the business? staying in it. Um, I said, well, at least it'll it'll be, I'll have a job for another year. Um, so yeah. that's cool. But I, I think- like at I, least financially, it would yeah, be okay. Yeah, it was, I knew I was going to be okay at least for this year that I was going to be in it. And by the time the um, it came time to decide whether I wanted to re-up my contract for another year or um, leave the show, I just thought if, you know, if- God threw me a bone, you know, when I was really hungry. Um, and uh, it, at that time to like book the show or whatever, then maybe I should like roll the dice and see what happens after, um, you know, leaving. And so that's so, you know, basically why I left and um, and then threw myself into writing. So uh, after, let's see, I guess after I left Curious Incident, I wrote Schoolgirls within the first six weeks. So. so can I ask you, during that time after you left Curious Incident, mm-hmm. were you like doing temp jobs or things or bartending? No, I um, I had saved up some money and um, I had just finally got an uh, acting agent because I didn't have one while I was on Broadway. Um, and so I got, I had uh, received an acting agent and... Um, was just auditioning and 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 doing whatever and living off of my my savings, um, but because I anticipated that I at least get some version of a job within the year, um, I I I was you know moving through my savings pretty quickly and so you know by ten months after the the show I was like oh god I really I really need a job I really need a job because I had kind of blown through my savings a bit. Um, and then I uh, and then I got an offer to do Men on Boats um, at right. Playwrights Horizons, which you know Off Broadway doesn't pay that much, but um, it was at least you know nice to be able to like you know jump into doing a show, even if it was not a show I ever thought I'd do. 
when um, when Schoolgirls started to get a lot of acclaim and get produced and then reproduced, was someone from Netflix in the house one night? Yeah, let's talk I, about the Netflix crossover. I mean, wow, it was it was kind of wild. Like um, when Schoolgirls was about to happen uh, in terms of like uh, previews. Um, I had gotten a call from that uh, Leslie Headland, um, who is a playwright I really, you know, look up to and, and just think she's awesome, was interested in uh, meeting with me because she had a TV show and uh, she was looking for some writers um, for the room. And so that I got sent the script for Russian Doll, and I was uh, I loved it, but I was very intimidated by it because I was like. <laughs> It's so smart. I don't think I'm this smart. <laughs> it was such a smart script. And I was like, I don't know why she would want to meet with me. Do you mean the script for the pilot? The script, yeah, the pilot script for a Russian Doll. Um, but I, I took the meeting um, anyway. And um, we had a really lovely time. And then she came to see Schoolgirls, um, I think the first or second preview, like some really early wow. you know, preview. And then next thing I knew, I got a phone call and flower. I got flowers first saying, like, congrats on the show. Oh and God. then I got a call that I was hired to be in the writer's room. Whoa. And I was like, what? <laughs> um, it was, like, the craziest thing. Um, and and I had to start right away. So I actually, uh, I remember the, I was in the writer's room, like, within days. Um, in New York or L.A.? It was in New York, thankfully. Um, Because I, you know, am just born and bred New Yorker and just do not want to be in L.A. Um, And, you know, there's nothing like being able to, you know, sleep in your own bed. So anyway, um, but it was uh, it was here in New York. And I remember having to, like, ask for permission, not in like that way, but just like, hey, guys, just a reminder, I won't be here tomorrow because I have opening night of my play. Um, And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, do your thing, (laughs) you know. Um, but it was which seems like the biggest thing happening to you. It was wild. It was wild that I was working on, you know, this show and opening schoolgirls at the same time. Um so yeah, that was that was how that happened in terms of, you know, Russian doll. And then uh schoolgirls um, you know, did you know really well that first run. Um and I thought that after Russian Doll was done, like, okay, that would be it, you know, and maybe I'd try to, like, kick around, you know, and, and see if I can try to get another TV gig. And maybe two weeks after I was done with Russian Doll, uh, I got a call again that Spike Lee um, was interested in meeting with me to be a writer on season two of She's Gotta Have It. And I was like, are you joking me? Like, uh, apparently he had gotten a copy of my script, him or his wife, excuse me, had gotten a copy of my script, and, you know, they read it. And, you know, we had one phone call and... and You and Spike. Yes. (laughs) Me and Spike just on the phone, chit-chatting. And then his wife joined the call because she's also an executive producer on the show. On She's Gotta Have It. And, uh, yeah, I think maybe three or four days later, I got a call that I was hired. That's insane. And then I started um, about a month after that. It's like you're entering like the dreams manifested time of life. It was unbelievable. And that it was two writers rooms within six months and that they were both in New York was like yeah. kind of, you know, and, and, uh, very, and both shows filmed in New yeah, York. Yeah, very New York shows, yeah, you yeah. know, and as a proud New Yorker, like that was something. And one Brooklyn. I know. It's like so <laughs> like, yeah. Um, so I was really uh, excited to be able to like, you know, jump into, you know, both of those shows. So. 
um, it was like being shot out of a cannon, but what a, what a great, you know, um, stomping ground, you know, for me. And I got to cameo in my episode of Russian Doll. Um, but it was happening, filming was happening at the same time that she's got to have, it was writing. So I had to ask Spike for permission. <laughs> I'm like, Hey, uh, the show that I wrote on, you know, wants me to film. And, and thankfully he was doing some like, uh, uh, last minute editing or music editing or something for a Black Klansman. Um, and so I, it just coincided perfectly with me being able to go. And, and were do you like, Russian am I Man. actually asking this question to Spike Lee? I really was. About my other TV show. I really was. And he, you know, and to his credit, he was actually very supportive and really excited, um, you know, that they were, you know, working out an opportunity like that for me. So. Um, you know, he likes people, you know, working and stuff. And, like, he, he's excited about all of that. As long as it wasn't going to mess with our schedule, fine. Um, so, yeah. How did you come to perform in the same episode that you wrote on Russian Doll? Well, they, you know, we, we Leslie knew I was an actor because um, she, you know, seen me in, in uh, quite a few plays, uh, namely Brandon's plays, actually. And so she was like, we have to get you on the show in some way. And so we just kept discussing like what role I could possibly be in that would work with my, you know, writer's room schedule. Um, and then it just happened that like, you know, it was, it was clear. So. Yeah. So you wrote, you read the pilot mm -hmm. and you had a feel for what the story was about. And um, for those who haven't seen Russian Doll yet, you should. And it is basically created by Natasha Lyonne and starring her. And it is about a woman on the evening of her 36th birthday where she attends a party in her honor, then dies, and then comes back repeatedly and has to kind of figure out over the course of the series why her actions that night matter in the course yeah. of her life. That's yeah. sort of the general plot without spoiling too much that the death happens really that's fast. Great. So. That's actually a really great um, <laughs> summary. <laughs> Thanks. So, since this is your first time in a, a writer's room, I think, yeah, mm -hmm. it's the first time that you're coming into a story that's a not your own, right? And b one in which there are certain demands that are outside of your narrative style. Yeah. So, what were the instructions that you were given about? about what needed to happen in your segment of writing. I think it's like episode six or something. Yeah, about. I wrote the fifth episode. Fifth. Um, well, I, they, they said I was going to write, you know, an episode. Um, and at first it was going to be the fourth episode, which was the introduction of Alan's character. He's another character on the show. Um, and then just because of scheduling purposes or whatever, then just shifted to being the fifth episode. So I knew that I was always going to write either the fourth or the fifth episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then in terms, so those are my only instructions. And then in terms of like figuring out what, you know, how to be in a writer's room and be um, collaborative and useful. Well, that was just, you know, like learning how to walk. I, I was actually so intimidated and nervous. Um, my first, I would say, two weeks in the room, I probably barely said anything, which is crazy because I'm not a quiet person. But I was so like... Um, intimidated by all of it and how rapidly ideas were getting thrown out and, and uh, you know, thrown on the board and then erased and taken down. And, and, you know, it's really just a bunch of people, you know, talking, 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 and then the best idea is the one that sticks. And I... I, I just didn't realize that, like, my work as an actor in, in new work and new plays and then my writing process as a playwright, I rewrite a lot, quite a lot, um, could actually be really super beneficial. And so I just opened my mouth one day 
And then they were like, that's funny. Put that on the board. <laughs> and then wow. that was like a really big learning lesson for me in terms of how much TV shows can evolve, um, yeah, even yeah. as they're being you know, made. Because there's been so many interviews with Natasha Leone where she talks about her, the way she created the story. And the story is so set in New York and so real to this kind of lifestyle, but also so absurdist yeah. and, and fantastical. Yeah. So it seemed like so out of her, it seemed like it emerged from her brain. Yeah. Like a fully formed child. Well, once, well, that's the thing is like, once we realized like, let's make this a character driven, you know, show, then it was like all of our stuff, all of our, you know, things got laid out, you know, and, you know, issues with, um, with addiction and yeah. and uh, relationships and commitment and mother issues and God, oof. Um, you know, I was like, oh, I can chime in here. <laughs> so there was a lot to 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 unpack and and we realized like we went all the way to Alaska, you know, just to really come back to mm. the kitchen table to the Lower East Side. Yeah, exactly. So I think for. A writer in a writer's room where there are these big voices, like the strong presence of the creators of the show there, and it can be so intimidating, as you said, it must be a bit of a relief when they're not quite sure what the arc should ultimately be. Yeah. Because it gives you maybe more of an access point rather than they know exactly how it's going to go. Like, imagine like being on like Game of Thrones final season and they're like, can you write this one episode? (laughs) Or something yeah, like that. No way. Like um, being able to to sort of pitch ideas yeah. maybe gave you more of a seat at that table. Well, and they were also, yes, yes, I agree with that. But they were also so um, collaborative and so inviting um, and really wanted everyone's you know ideas on the table. And also like Natasha, as seasoned of an actress as she is, she's never been in a writer's room either. Um so they always made the the room was like a completely inviting um, and warm room. And I'm so grateful. I mean, the, you hear so many nightmare stories about, you know, writer's rooms and especially your first one. Um, and I will always be indebted to them for giving me such a a great and collaborative um, experience and, and really allowing me to be an active part of the process. Yeah. This past winter... The New York Times asked you, among other playwrights, to write short plays that imagine the year 2024. Mm-hmm. And just a few weeks ago, the print issue came out that featured those 15 plays. Um, and yours, your play, The Waiting Room, is that the right? Yeah. The Waiting Room was was featured. It was like an astounding issue. And um, yours was so... Uh, haunting and powerful and not comedic. No. Um, it was, and even the performed version, which you can go on the Times website and see mm-hmm. um, some great actors doing the various plays. It's, it was like deliberately, now knowing your work, mm-hmm. deliberately a, a separation. Oh, yeah. From that more comic style. It really sure. got to the heart of it. Um, can you talk about that project? Yeah. I um, was asked by the yeah the New York Times that they were like asking a bunch of writers to uh, write a play um, or a piece of theater, and that the prompt um, was that we had to imagine um, twenty twenty four as the year that 
uh, a new leader would be taking over in the White House. So it was a, so we had to assume that Trump had been reelected in 2020. Um, and that was a really dark, you know, prompt for me. Um, and I did not find anything about it funny at all. Um, but it was when I had been asked to do it, actually, it was shortly after the, uh, shithole countries comment, um, that had been made by this president. And I was so, uh, infuriated by the conversations that were happening around immigration. And, uh, there was also a lot of conversation about revoking birthright citizenship and how they were flirting with that idea, which is obviously how I'm a citizen, I thought, um, what if, what if people who look and sound just as American as I am, you know, could all of a sudden be, you know, ripped out of their country and, and, and sent back to the origin of their parents' country, um, solely because, you know, one person has deemed them not, uh, appropriate or fit to stay in America. And so that's what I, I wrote about. And yeah, it was a departure, but it was purposeful because I was like, this, nothing about this is funny at all. Um, weirdly, this like little 10 minute play, which I hate writing. I hate writing 10 minute plays. I hate them so much. Cause I'm just like, Ugh, this is like a, just, it's like a grad school like exercise. Yeah. But ultimately uh, I'm really proud of, um, of this and really proud to be amongst, you know, so many um, artists. I felt, I really felt like I had made it <laughs> because I was being asked, you know, to be part of such a incredible, you know, issue. And um, yeah. Is it crazy that schoolgirls led to all those? Oh, I can't believe that. You know, you never know where anything can lead you to. That's like, you know, also, you know, a big lesson for me. So where do you see yourself or what do you see yourself doing in 2024? Um, well, in 2024, I hope to have... Um, finished i hope that i've been in like probably the or about to be in the last season of like a really successful show centered around um african people and um i hope to have, uh, to have an incredible canon of plays that have been you know produced a musical um i don't know i have no right now that's where my head's at but in 2024 i who know, i'm probably gonna be like i want to go to the moon. I have no idea. I have no idea. I want to do a play on the moon. With Spike Lee. With Spike Lee directing it. <laughs> Jocelyn, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Places Everyone on Twitter. Podcast production and original music by Cody Crabb. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time.